0: Hey folks, based on your feedback, we've overhauled the shop. It's been streamlined and is much easier to use. To say thanks to everyone who's been in touch and given feedback on your experience of using the shop, we now have 10% off everything this week. So if you go to irishhistorypodcast.ie and use the code FEEDBACK, you'll get 10% off your total order. If you enjoyed this episode, it's worth checking out the poster of the Limerick Soviet in particular. Originally published in 1919, it has that classic early 20th century aesthetic, and it's also one you don't see too often. So, check that out and don't forget to use the code feedback to get your discount. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. This is episode six of the War of Independence series, the Limerick Soviet and the Russian Revolution. While the conflict, as we have seen, started with an ambush at Solahead Beg involving just over a dozen people in total, in this episode the war shifts gears. Tanks, airplanes and soldiers will effectively besiege the city of Limerick as the series moves into April 1919. Now this provokes a major reaction from the trade union movement in the city as we are about to see which leads to famous events known as the Limerick Soviet. While the series to date has been understandably dominated by the republican movement, this chapter of the war sees the trade union movement take centre stage, something that's inextricably linked to a much wider story, that of the Russian revolution. So the show begins with a previously untold and forgotten story, that of the Limerick woman Theodosia Nash who found herself in Russia in 1917 as the revolution began there. We will follow her on a remarkable journey as she escaped the chaos of the Russian civil war in 1918. Then in the second half of the episode we'll focus on her home city of Limerick and the story of the Soviets. Additional research in this episode was by the archivist and historian Sam McGrath. Sound was by Jason Looney. Additional narrations are by Aidan Crow and Therese Murray and the artwork for this series is by Keith Hines. Finally, if you're thinking of supporting the show on Patreon, this is a great week to get on board. Next week, the main series is taking a break, but over on Patreon, I'll be hosting the second Q&A with Dr. Brian Hanley from Trinity College, Dublin. That'll be a great chance if you want to delve deeper into the history. You can find out more at patreon.com. Forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish Podcast. The Limerick woman, Theodosia Nash, was one of the few Irish people to witness the Russian Revolution of nineteen seventeen. To experience these events firsthand put her center stage in world history. While it's often an overused phrase, there's no question that the Russian Revolution changed not only the history of Russia but that of the entire world. Rooted in inequality and class tension, the revolution led to the first communist state and in the short term at least it instilled workers across the world with confidence that if they acted collectively they could shape their own destiny rather than accept their lot in life. Although she did not participate in the revolution and would ultimately embark on one of the most extraordinary journeys to escape it, due to her unusual upbringing Theodosia understood how class background could have a profound impact on the life of a person. She was born to wealthy parents in 1882 outside Limerick City at Ballycullen, near the village of Rathkeel. While their estates were modest compared to Ireland's wealthiest landlords, the Nash family were well known and well respected her grandfather had served as Lord Chancellor of Ireland. Her father Joseph Carl Nash, while not as successful, still always described himself as a gentleman, meaning he did not have to work to provide for his family. Her mother, also called Theodosia, was the daughter of a wealthy landowner in North Cork. Through her early childhood Theodosia received a good education and it seemed the rigid class boundaries of the late Victorian era would shape the contours of her life she would marry at around the age of 20. The choice of husband would be limited to families like her own or perhaps a successful professional, maybe a doctor or solicitor from Limerick City. Then in the following decades she would give birth to perhaps four or five children while overseeing the management of her household, although physical labour would be left to servants and kitchen staff that she would employ. Things however did not quite work out for Theodosia. In 1891 her life was upended by a scandal rooted in the class structure of society. This began on December 26th 1890 when her father, Joseph Carl Nash, died after a long illness. On the death of her father, Theodosia's mother was expected to visibly mourn her late husband for up to a year, dressing in black clothes. However, within 11 months she had remarried and while this haste was perhaps considered unseemly at the time, it was her choice of husband a man called Thomas Carrick that caused the scandal. Thomas was everything her wealthy family was not. He was a working class man from Limerick City. He had never had the opportunity to learn to read and write and on their wedding day he could not sign the register, instead marking his name with an X. However, the reasons her mother's decision to marry Thomas was greeted with such disapproval ran far deeper than his ability to read and write. Even though he worked hard throughout his life, as a farmer, a clerk, a labourer, a horse dealer and then by 1911 a porter in the Limerick Asylum, this was precisely the problem. Thomas Carrick worked to earn a living and for the ruling class in society, maintaining strict boundaries between them and the working class was crucial as it underpinned and maintained the economic inequality at the heart of society. In marrying this working class man, two years her junior, Theodosia's mother had committed a cardinal sin in the eyes of many. She had crossed the rigid class divide that shaped late 19th century society and this was unforgivable. She would never be allowed to return. Whether Theodosia herself moved with her mother to live with Thomas Carrick is unclear, but their marriage revealed the difficult, hard and precarious nature of working class life at the time. Although Thomas worked hard and they lived In what was, by comparison to many, a spacious house consisting of four rooms, life remained a difficult struggle. They were surrounded by the notorious lanes of Limerick, where less fortunate working-class families lived in degrading conditions. A journalist recorded a speech from the mayor of the city when he addressed a meeting of Limerick Corporation in September 1896. He described working-class housing in the city as follows.
2: All strangers are shocked by the appalling conditions of ruin in which the main thoroughfares of the city are in. If they turned off those main thoroughfares into the lanes, they found a state of things that could not be paralleled in Europe. The squalor, wretchedness, and filth was worse than existed in any civilised city in the world. And it is a matter of shame that our fellow men is obliged thus to, to live under conditions in which we would not put the beasts of the field obliged to rear their children and bring up families in surroundings that were utterly incontemptible, not alone with morality and virtue, but with common decency.
0: These conditions resulted in high infant mortality rates and when Theodosia's mother and Thomas Carrick started a family they suffered as all working class families did. They would have two children, Anne and Mary, the latter dying at nine months of age. While Thomas secured a desirable job in the Limerick Asylum as a porter, which provided accommodation, this still brought little security. Indeed, around 1914, when he was cleaning heating pipes in the asylum, he sustained a serious injury to his right eye. Attempts to treat this injury failed and he would lose the eye. While he did return to work, his remaining eye then became infected. This effectively left him blind and he lost his job as a porter in the asylum. What happened to Theodosia's mother and Thomas after this is unclear, but the fact that she died in the Limerick City home, the renamed Workhouse, in 1928 indicates they struggled. These events had a profound impact on Theodosia herself. However, rather than change society, she did her best to try and maintain her own status in the class she had been born into and from which her mother was banished. While she left no account of these events, The records of the turn of the twentieth century indicate Theodosia chose a very different path to her mother. Around 1900 she and her sister Ellen approached adulthood. Given what had befallen their family it was obvious that the two would have to do something unimaginable to previous generations of their family, work outside the home to earn a living. However in what may have been a desperate attempt to maintain an illusion of grandeur and social superiority the two women chose the same career that of governess. Governesses were private tutors for the children of wealthy families. While often the chosen profession of middle-class women, it could also serve to mask the dramatic decline in family fortunes like the scandal that surrounded Theodosia Nash. While they were poorly paid, the position of governess would save a woman from the perceived ignominy of working in a kitchen. Unlike the rest of the staff in the household, governesses were considered ladies, making them separate and socially superior to working class women. Theodosia may have been guided in this choice of career by her uncle, her mother's brother Edward Sheehy, a wealthy farmer from Milford in North Cork. Whatever the case, by the age of 19, in 1901 she had taken up her first position of governess in his house. This would provide her with much needed experience, but it was not a permanent solution. Despite the status the position carried, the life of a governess was always precarious, never more than a fixed-term position, and once the children in her care grew up, they were surplus to requirements in the household and would have to find a new post. Indeed by 1911, when Lulu, the youngest of her uncle's children, was already 17, Theodosia had left the house. To advance her career she took what was a bold move, although one that allowed her to start afresh leaving the scandal of her upbringing behind. She and her sister Ellen joined the dozens of Irish women who moved to the Russian Empire where their services as governesses were highly sought after. This move would have fateful consequences. While her move to Russia may have been an attempt to maintain the illusions of a lost life, she would somewhat ironically find herself living through a revolution that sought to abolish the entire class system one that would have profound consequences across the world. By the late 19th and early 20th century, Russia had become an increasingly attractive place for governesses from the United Kingdom to find work. Given the British Empire was at its height, having an English-speaking governess from the United Kingdom to tutor their children was seen as a status symbol among the Russian nobility. There was a strong financial incentive for women like Theodosia and her sister to relocate to the Russian Empire, The Russian nobility were willing to pay comparatively very high wages for governesses from the UK and in a time where social welfare did not exist the savings she could make in Russia could be the difference between spending the end of her life in a workhouse or her own home. When precisely Theodosia and her sister Ellen arrived in the Russian Empire is unclear but they must have moved there before the outbreak of World War I. The two found positions in or around the city of Kiev in Ukraine, then a province of the vast empire, geographically one of the largest in the world, stretching from modern Poland in the west to the port of Vladivostok on the Pacific Ocean in the east. As lucrative and attractive as this career was, Theodosia arrived in a Russia with a very uncertain future. Much like Ireland, the years before the war had seen major upheaval. Indeed, the Russian monarch, the Tsar, had been lucky to cling to power during a popular uprising in 1905. However, the economic chaos unleashed across the globe by the First World War proved too much for his archaic government. The astonishing incompetence of the Romanov regime, compounded by food shortages and catastrophic defeats on the battlefield, radicalised the population, particularly the working class in industrial cities. By 1916, strikes were commonplace in Moscow and the capital of St. Petersburg. While these initially seemed to be an outpouring of anger by a war-weary population, what unfolded in the coming days and weeks had profound consequences, inspiring workers as far away as Theodosia's home city of Limerick. Led by workers, the uprising in St. Petersburg enjoyed support across society and quickly spread through the provinces. Meanwhile soldiers in the army began to mutiny on the front while units in many cities supported the emerging revolution. The centuries-old Tsarist regime crumbled. The Tsar himself was forced to abdicate and the entire apparatus of royal governance collapsed. For Theodosia Nash the world she had come to work in, that of the nobility, was crumbling around her. Peasants stormed the houses of nobles and occupied the land. While the Russian Revolution is a complex event, through the summer of 1917, the liberal politicians who replaced the Tsar proved inept. Workers demanded that Soviets, councils of soldiers and workers, took power, while conservatives wanted army generals to impose a dictatorship. Eventually in October 1917, when communists in the Bolshevik party seized power in Saint Petersburg, what was a powder keg exploded into a civil war and in many areas the revolution intensified. The revolutionaries not only wanted an end to the war and the brutal Romanov regime but the entire class system and capitalism itself. It became obvious that no matter what happened this revolution was going to fundamentally change Russia into a society and a country where Theodosia Nash had no future. The people she had come to serve were on borrowed time. She had to leave the Russian Empire and fast. By February 1918 Theodosia and her sister had fled to Moscow. There they joined growing numbers of foreigners desperate to escape. Eventually the Bolshevik government helped the sisters and around 40 other residents from the United Kingdom to leave Russia by providing them with a train. However, with all routes west cut due to the war, the proposed route would see them travel east across Siberia to the Pacific coast. They would effectively circumnavigate the globe to return home, a journey of nearly 26,000 kilometres. Uncertain as it was unsafe, they had little choice and the two sisters joined a motley group of people thrown together by these strange circumstances. They included John Picton Bagg, the British consul in the port of Odessa, and the English aristocrat Lady Muriel Paget, the daughter of the Earl of Wenchelsea, who had been in Russia since 1916 overseeing the British Red Cross efforts there. There were also 17 governesses in total who had been working in or around Kiev, including three other Irish women, the Dubliners, Martha Nunn and Sarah Dowling and Frances Young from Derry. There was also another Irish woman, Annie Callanan, from Crockwell in Galway, who had been working as a maid in Poland. They departed Moscow on the night of February the 22nd, 1918, while the country was still in the grip of a bitter winter. One of the five Red Cross nurses on the train, probably Lady Muriel Paget, would later recall this journey in an article in The Times.
1: A grating and a creaking... A violent jerk and our train lumbered heavily into the night bound for Siberia, the unknown land of mystery. Small iron stoves at either end of the corridor were our only means of heating the car and cooking any available food. During the first part of the journey we suffered considerably from the cold, especially at night. One morning the milk in a bottle placed by a lady under her pillow the previous evening was found frozen into a solid mass. When we reached Siberia, the temperatures were 38 below zero.
0: A few days east of Moscow, the Ural Mountains, the great divide between Europe and Asia, came into view. The train stopped at the small town of Vershagino, where Theodosia witnessed the townspeople celebrate the first anniversary of the Russian Revolution. Muriel Paget dismissively observed the celebrations in the town.
1: From the town came the sounds of music, It was the first anniversary of the revolution words cannot describe the content of the buffet overflowing with soldiers pushing and elbowing their way to the counter it resembled a barn tablecloths in rags mangy dogs yelping under the tables and the smell of the room to one coming from the frosty air was nauseating in the extreme
0: for theodosia nash whether she knew it or not This had far more in common with her mother's life than she cared to admit. Indeed, it was precisely the attitudes in the passage above that were creating an environment where workers everywhere, indeed as far away as Limerick, would find common cause with the Russian revolution. In these events they saw hope that they could free themselves from their difficult lives. Indeed, as the group of 40 or so people made their way across Russia in 1918 it would prove impossible to escape the impact of the Russian Revolution. It was injecting further tensions into a world where class warfare had already been close to boiling point. The experience of the First World War was becoming a defining moment where the working class were adamant the world would change. As their train continued east, day after day, they passed through the Ural Mountains, then across the vast Siberian wilderness, occasionally encountering the devastation wrought by the Russian Civil War. When Theodosia Nash reached Irkutsk, near the Mongolian border, she found large sections of the city in ruins. After skirting along the northern frontier with China, they finally reached the port of Vladivostok on the Pacific coast of Russia on April 2, 1918. From there they finally escaped the Russian Empire, first crossing to the Japanese city of Yokohama. On April 20, they left Japan, crossing the Pacific Ocean to Canada, and despite everything she had endured, Theodosia was described as being in good physical and mental health when she reached Vancouver on April 29th. However in this Canadian city it was clear the issues that led to the Russian revolution were by no means unique or limited to the Russian Empire. In Vancouver tensions in working class communities were rising over forced conscription into the army and poor wages. This would lead to a general strike in the city that summer but across the world workers everywhere, including Ireland, were being radicalised by similar experiences of the war. The fact Russian workers had been successful in 1917 instilled confidence. As the group continued their odyssey east across North America, it came to an end for Theodosia and her sister Ellen in Montreal, Quebec. Having reached the city on the St. Lawrence River, the Nash Sisters, for one reason or another decided they would end their journey there and settled in the city for the coming years. By 1920 they were working as clerks. There was little drawing them back to Ireland. Surviving records indicate they may have had no relationship with their mother. In her 1911 census return she had stated that she had given birth to five children, of which only one remained alive, Anne, the surviving daughter she had had with her second husband, to list Theodosia and Ellen as dead seems a very unlikely error. It may well reflect a complete breakdown in their relationship. The rest of the group, including the four remaining Irish women, continued onwards finally arriving in the British port of Liverpool on May the 24th 1918. In the coming weeks, Lady Muriel Paget penned several articles talking about her experience, denouncing the revolution and urging support for British intervention in the Russian Civil War. However, workers everywhere had a very different perception of these events. They were, as we have seen, inspired by what was unfolding in Russia and indeed in Theodosia Nash's home city of Limerick her mother would see the city transformed in the coming years. As workers' militancy surged in Limerick they would seize the initiative taking the lead role in the Irish War of Independence in April 1919. Since the 1890s working class militancy had been on the rise across Europe. As increasing numbers of people moved to cities, the nature of their lives and the grueling conditions in which they worked and lived served to radicalise them. In Ireland, individual trade unions had formed the Irish Trade Union Congress in 1894, which became a powerful force. The establishment of the Irish Labour Party in the early 20th century added to the growing influence of the labour movement in Irish society. This had stalled, however, in 1913 when they suffered a major defeat at the hands of Dublin employers during the lockout of that year, a bitter six-month dispute in the city. However, the experience of the First World War had seen this radical movement re-emerge relatively quickly. During these years the membership of trade unions increased at an extremely rapid rate. The Irish Trade Union Congress had doubled in size through the war with a membership that stood at half a million in 1918. While the Republican movement dominated the headlines, the workers' movement flexed their muscle in 1918, as we saw in Episode 3, when they organised a general strike on April the 23rd, 1918, to oppose conscription in Ireland. For these people, the Russian Revolution had a major impact. Sidney Arnold, a Latvian socialist living in Dublin, writing in the newspaper The Irish Citizen in February 1918, gave voice to what the Russian Revolution meant to workers at the time.
2: Dreams have become realities. Ideals have materialized, and most of the dreams for which true men and women fought and died have been achieved absolutely and entirely.
0: Indeed, if Theodosia Nash had watched the first anniversary of the Russian Revolution in the bitter cold of Versagino, she could scarcely have believed similar events were taking place in Dublin. On February the 4th, 1918, the Freeman's Journal recorded a vivid account of celebrations to mark the revolution where both the Socialist Anthem, the Red Flag, and the Irish Republican Anthem, the Soldier's Song, were heard.
1: Mr William O'Brien, Chairman of the Irish Labour Party, presided at a meeting in the Mansion House last night, organised by the Socialist Party of Ireland, to congratulate the Russian people on the triumph they had won for democratic principles. The round room of the mansion house was crowded and overflow meetings were held in the supper room and outside the building. Sinn Féin flags and the socialist red flag were displayed and during an interval a large section of the audience sang the red flag, which was greeted with tumultuous applause.
0: In the following months, membership of trade unions continued to rise at an extremely rapid rate. One of the most militant unions, the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, had grown to 100,000 members by 1919, having started at a membership of just 5,000 in 1916. Their growing power was evident in the streets. In Limerick on May 1st, 1918, the first ever celebration of the International Workers' Day was organised in the city. 10,000 workers paraded through the streets before the crowds passed the following resolution sending solidarity to the Russian revolutionaries.
1: We, the workers of Limerick and District, in mass meeting assembled, extend fraternal greetings to the workers of all countries, paying particular tribute to our Russian comrades who have waged such a magnificent struggle for their social and political emancipation.
0: A militant and tense atmosphere continued to build and, in September 1918, nearly 20,000 builders in Dublin went on strike demanding wage increases. After a two-week dispute, a negotiated settlement resulted in a wage increase of 1.5 pence per hour. While the Russian Revolution in 1917 influenced these events, it wasn't as simple as a straightforward cause and effect. Events in Ireland were shaped by local conditions. Indeed, in general workers had a limited knowledge or even interest in the minute and internal dynamics of the revolution in Russia. What was most important to them was that people just like them had successfully taken power in one of the largest countries in the world. The threat posed by this situation was not lost on the ruling class and the authorities. The British Prime Minister David Lloyd George writing to his French counterpart, George Clemenceau addressed the wider situation. Watching organisations like the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union grow at a phenomenal rate, he feared a repeat of the Russian Revolution.
2: The whole of Europe is filled with the spirit of revolution. There is a deep sense not only of discontent, but also of anger and revolt amongst the workmen against the pre-war conditions. The whole existing order in its political, social and economic aspect is questioned by the masses of the population from one end of Europe to the other. There is a danger that we may throw the masses of the population throughout Europe into the arms of the extremists, whose only idea for regenerating mankind is to destroy utterly the whole existing fabric of society. These men have triumphed in Russia.
0: In the case of Ireland, Lloyd George did not fear a communist revolution like the one unfolding in Russia. While they continued to organise for strikes and better wages, it was the struggle of Irish independence where the trade union movement was engaging in politics. Socialism, while popular, was very much on the back burner in the coming years and as World War I drew to a close, it was increasingly clear that trade unions would inevitably be drawn into the war of independence. This took place in April 1919 in pretty dramatic fashion in Theodosia Nash's home city of Limerick in events known as the Limerick Soviet. Central to this was the Limerick trade unionist and IRA member, Robert Byrne. Robert Byrne was born in Dublin in 1889 to parents who had originally come from Limerick and while he was still only a teenager the family moved back to Limerick moving into what was called Townwall Cottage a few hundred metres from where Theodosia Nash's mother lived on Gary Owen Road in the city. Much like Theodosia Nash, the death of Robert Byrne's father in February 1907 had a major impact on his life, although the two ended up on very different paths. The financial pressures on his family resulting from his father's death may have been the reason Robert moved back to Dublin that year to take up a position in the civil service. In the following years this job took him around the country. By the summer of 1908 he had been transferred to the Cork town of Kinsale And from there he moved to Bandon. However by 1911 he was back in Limerick where he had taken up a job in the general post office in the city. During the following years Robert emerged as a prominent and well known political activist in Limerick. He joined the trade union in his workplace the Post Office Clerks Association and by 1918 he was not only the branch president but also represented the union on the Limerick United Trades and Labour Council which coordinated trade union activity across the city. He was also a prominent figure in Republican politics as well. A member of Sinn Féin, he was also an IRA volunteer, serving as adjutant for the 2nd Battalion of the Mid-Limerick Brigade.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
0: Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy, and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irish history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash irish history. However, his radical activism had serious consequences for Byrne. He was fired from his job in 1918 and then at the end of the year the police raided his home. Seizing a gun, ammunition and documents they also arrested Robert and subsequently charged him with possession of a revolver and at his trial on January 13, 1919 he was sentenced to 12 months in prison. This took place just as events in Ireland were escalating. Eight days after he was sentenced the first Doyle had met while in Tipperary Seamus Robinson and the Tipperary IRA had pulled off a successful robbery of gelignite at Sala Head Beg which left two policemen dead. Then two weeks later Eamon de Valera had escaped from Lincoln jail. In Limerick prison Robert Byrne and the other republicans incarcerated there began a campaign demanding to be recognised as political prisoners which would have among other things afforded them increased rights. When their demands were rejected they went on hunger strike. By March 1919, after several weeks of refusing food, Robert Byrne's health had deteriorated and the authorities in Limerick Prison moved him from the jail to the hospital in the local workhouse. Incidentally, this was the same building where Theodosia Nash's mother would die in 1928 after it had been renamed the Limerick City Home and Hospital. In April 1919 it would witness events that had far-reaching consequences. Once news emerged that Robert Byrne had been moved to the workhouse, the mid-Limerick Brigade of the IRA realised this was their best chance to free him. While five RIC members and a prison warder guarded his bed, it was still by no means as secure as a prison. The ward where he was being cared for was more or less open to the public. After careful consideration, the IRA devised an escape plan, which was simple but effective. There would be no complex operation like there had been in the Lincoln escape. Instead on the day of the rescue ten volunteers would make their way into the ward under the pretense that they were just visiting other patients. Then after a signal was given they would overpower the guards. Meanwhile outside the workhouse they would have a carriage waiting to take Byrne to a nursing home where he would be cared for. Straightforward as it was it did not go according to plan. By the day's end two people were dead, another severely wounded and Limerick, a city of 40,000 people, was effectively besieged by the British Army the following week. The plan to free Robert Byrne was put into action on April 6th 1919. The escape was led by Michael Stack and John Gallagher, and they were the only two IRA volunteers to carry weapons on the day. In total, over 20 others were involved in the operation between those who would enter the hospital ward and those in supporting roles in the surrounding area. Michael Stack explained his leading role, which would see him inform Robert Byrne about what was about to happen.
2: The arrangements made for the rescue were that I was, first of all, to visit the hospital and tell him what we had intended doing. When I had finished my visit, I would leave his room and go out of that particular ward, travelling around the hospital, and by a roundabout way come back to the same ward again. While this was all happening, the remainder of my party were to visit patients in the ward and to pose as friends and so worked their way near the armed guard overborne. The whole rescue was timed, and on the blast of a whistle from me, they were to rush the RIC guard and pin them down.
0: Pretending to be ordinary visitors, the volunteers distributed tobacco and gifts to what must have been bemused patients while they waited for the agreed signal to act. At 3pm, Michael Stack arrived back in the ward as planned and blew the whistle, the signal to start the operation. The unarmed IRA volunteers in the ward threw themselves on the police surrounding Robert Byrne's bed. Michael Stack remembered.
2: A general melee seemed to have taken place at the same moment I was approaching Byrne's bed.
0: Given they outnumbered the guards, the IRA volunteers quickly overpowered them. Meanwhile, as Michael Stack moved towards Robert Byrne, weakened as he was, he started to stand up from his bed when one of the constables intervened. Stack picks up the story again.
2: I saw Constable Spillane fire at Byrne and threw himself on the bed on top of Byrne. When I saw this happening I fired at Spillane who fell over Robert on the bed and then I had to pull Spillane off Byrne to get him out of the bed.
0: Spillane had been shot in the spine and although seriously injured he did recover from his wounds. The other policemen and the prison guard were then tied up as the IRA including Byrne started to leave the workhouse. However at this moment one of the policemen managed to free himself. Michael Stack remembered. Constable O'Brien freed himself and drew his gun and was about to fire when I shot him.
2: He died immediately, and I relieved him of his arms.
0: Continuing about their business, Stack and the other volunteers helped Robert Byrne from the workhouse, but the carriage they had arranged to transport Byrne was nowhere to be seen. In a mix-up it was actually waiting at the rear of the building. It was only at this point that the IRA volunteers noticed Robert Byrne was actually very seriously injured. Constable Spillan had shot him from almost point-blank range and by the time they were outside the workhouse he was bleeding heavily from a wound to the chest. With no sign of the carriage they commandeered the first pony and trap that passed. The couple driving were actually sympathetic and they agreed to take Byrne to their farm outside Milik just over the border in County Clare. While the escape had worked Robert Byrne, already weakened from his hunger strike, was very seriously wounded. The bullet had passed through one of his lungs, causing what was a fatal hemorrhage, and he died that night after 8pm. As news filtered out, Limerick held its breath for the inevitable backlash. The authorities would want vengeance for the policeman that had been killed, while the wider population of the city was outraged when it emerged that the popular Robert Byrne had died at the hands of the police. His funeral, due to be held in the city on Thursday, April 9th, was clearly going to be a flashpoint. The authorities feared it would turn into a major show of strength for the IRA in the city. Two years earlier, at the funeral of Thomas Ashe in Dublin, large numbers of volunteers, some in uniform, had marched behind his coffin before shots were fired over the grave. The authorities were adamant this would not be repeated in Limerick in 1919. On Wednesday April 8th Limerick City was declared a special military area and the city was placed under martial law. To enter or leave the public needed special permits. Robert Byrne's funeral went ahead the following day amid scenes that were scarcely believable. And while Ireland had been slowly sliding into a war of independence, no one could deny the country was now in a state of war. The Limerick newspaper, The Munster News, described the scene.
1: The funeral of the much-regretted Mr Byrne took place on Thursday afternoon from St John's Cathedral, in which the remains lay in front of the high altar since Tuesday night, immense numbers having visited the sacred edifice during Wednesday. The authorities, anticipating a military parade, took every precaution to enforce prohibition of any such demonstration. Extra forces of military and police were on duty on the streets or in reserve at the barracks. Armoured cars were posted in selected sites and two aeroplanes hovered over the cathedral and its grounds and along the route selected for the procession.
0: This overwhelming of force stopped any explicit military demonstration on behalf of the IRA, but the funeral was enormous, with volunteers in civilian clothes performing a guard of honour at the cathedral before the coffin, draped in a republican tricolour, was paraded through the streets. The tension in Limerick was palpable. At one point as the cortege passed a group of soldiers, they lowered their rifles in a mark of respect but the clatter of rifle butts against the ground and the glint of steel bayonets terrified the crowd, who feared they were about to be attacked. In the ensuing stampede, one person was injured. However, all told, the funeral itself passed off without any major incident, but Limerick City remained on a knife edge. The proclamation of martial law remained in effect and was having a major impact on the working class in particular. The military checkpoints left the major working-class neighbourhood of Thomond Gate on the west bank of the River Shannon outside the cordon, meaning workers were subjected to searches and harassment every time they went to and from work. Already incensed, given Byrne had been a trade union leader in the city, the first coordinated resistance to the British Army operations ongoing in the city began in the Cleves condensed milk factory, whose workers were heavily impacted. The fact that several of the factory's trade unionists were also Sinn Fein activists, added an additional dimension to the growing tension. When they went on strike it quickly spread across the city. The Limerick United Trades and Neighbour Council of which Robert Byrne had been a member intervened and declared a general strike calling all workers to refuse to work in protest against what they called British militarism from Monday April the 14th 1919. When the general strike got underway Limerick ground to a complete standstill as 14,000 workers in a city of just 40,000 people refused to go to work. However, this was no ordinary strike. The strike committee, a body put in place to oversee its running, effectively took over day-to-day life in Limerick. While they closed down all non-essential industry, they ensured any essential services remained open. A report to the Irish Trade Union Congress described conditions in the city.
1: The effectiveness of the control and thorough organisation of the city by the strike committee was acknowledged by all. No work was done except by permission of the committee. Shops were allowed to open for stated periods, scales of prices were fixed, food supplies were organised in the county and in the city. The city was policed by the strike patrols.
0: Four food depots were established and only vehicles bearing a sign working under the authority of the strike committee were allowed to operate while all pubs were closed. The American journalist Ruth Russell of the Chicago Tribune wrote about her experiences when she travelled to the city where she found an atmosphere that was eerie and tense. While the army had stepped down some of its operations, soldiers were still visible on the streets.
1: In the yards of the Limerick Station the train came to a dead stop. Then the conductor unlocked compartments, while a kilted Scotch officer with three bayonet-carrying soldiers behind him asked for permits. At last, we were pulled into the station, filled with empty freight trucks and its guard of soldiers. Through the dusk beyond, the rain was slithering. "'Sorry, no cab, miss,' said the constable. "'The whole city's on strike.' All the limerick shops I passed were blinded or shuddered. In the gray light, black lines of people moved desolately up and down, not allowed to congregate and apparently not wanting to remain in homes they were weary of. A few candles flickered in windows. After leaving my suitcase at a hotel, I left for strike headquarters. On my way, I neared Sarsfield Bridge, between it and me there loomed a great black mass. Close to it I found it was a tank and surrounded by massed barbed wire inside a wooden fence.
0: This situation quickly garnered an international reputation aided by the fact that there were large numbers of international journalists in Nimerick. The Irish Trade Union Congress reported
1: Several representatives from the American newspapers were in the city awaiting news of the first Atlantic aeroplane flight, which was intended to start from a spot a few miles from the city. These newspaper men made the most of the occasion and, in the absence of the flying news, reported every incident connected with the strike for the edification of the world.
0: It was these journalists seeking to hype the event dubbed it the Limerick Soviet, after the Russian Soviets that had played a central role in the revolution there. Names aside, there was very little specific detail that events in Limerick shared in common with the Russian Revolution. The strike in Limerick was in opposition to the British authorities rather than capitalist exploitation. Indeed, initially at least, they were supported by many businesses in Limerick. Nevertheless it reflected a new period in the War of Independence. The Irish Times reported
1: The agitation is a challenge against the British government in Ireland, against which some Irish men have worked themselves up to a pitch so mad that they would prefer a blood-stained and bankrupt Bolshevism to an Ireland safe under British rule.
0: While this was a somewhat hysterical view, it was clear that trade unions had the power to have a major influence on the War of Independence. However, sustaining a strike of this nature was an enormous challenge. The strike committee in Limerick contacted the Irish Trade Union Congress stating that they would need a strike fund of seven to £8,000 a week. The Congress only came up with around £1,500. The strike would either have to expand or it could not survive. However, when the Limerick Strike Committee asked for the leadership of the labour movement to call a national general strike, this was rejected. Had they pursued this course of action, they would effectively have placed the labour movement as the driving force in the War of Independence. Historians have noted how the labour movement was served by a poor leadership at this time but in any case they had no desire to take on such a role and failing to expand the strike the only option was to de-escalate the situation in Nimerick. Negotiations began and on Friday April the 25th workers who could go to work without having to pass through military checkpoints were told to do so this was clearly just a step to end the strike. The tensions that had provoked it in the first place, British army checkpoints and the military cordon, were also being gradually relaxed as well. Through the following weekend, local political and church leaders called for an end to the strike and the strike committee called on all workers to return to work on April 28th. The Limerick Soviet was at an end. As a standalone event, the outcome of the strike was indecisive at best and the workers in Limerick no matter what face-saving statements were made, after the strike had not received the required support they needed from the trade union movement leadership or Sinn Féin for that matter. However, in terms of the wider conflict, it was significant. The war which had begun in fits and starts was unquestionably escalating. The very fact it took place at all was a testimony to this, but there is no doubt that these events, that took place during the days around Robert Burns' funeral had seen Limerick become a war zone with tanks on the streets and military airplanes circling over the city at times. It was clear Ireland was in a state of war. The depth of support for independence, or at least hostility to the British authorities, was also revealed by the fact the strike had received widespread support across Limerick. It was also by no means the last time workers as an organised group would intervene in the conflict. Through late 1920 as we will see in later episodes transport and dock workers would refuse to transport any soldiers or military equipment. In the next episode we will remain in County Limerick as the series moves into May 1920 and we return to pick up the story of the IRA volunteers who carried out the ambush at Sala Head Beg. They had been the most wanted men in Ireland since January and finally the authorities captured one of their number, Sean Hogan, however this unit one of the most prolific throughout the war immediately set and train a plan to free Sean Hogan. This would lead to the famous Knocklong ambush. Until next time, Sloan.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well?